Hi, uh, this is once again John Cho and Lynn Hilton Wilson, and we are covering the um, "Come Follow Me" and Old Testament uh, with parallels in the Book of Mormon. Again, the, the really the three questions we're really uh, looking for are: How does this relate to Christ? Um, how does the Book of Mormon help us understand the Old Testament? Of course, how do we liken this to ourselves? That's right. it. And there's a lot of information to deal yeah. with in these chapters. There's this a... is just a powerful group. But the opposition between looking at Cain's story and Enoch's story is really uh, powerful. Yeah, so last time last time we covered creation, fall, and agency. And um, now we're picking up Genesis 4 and 5 in Moses 4 through 7. But you know, it's interesting because there's a lot on the fall in Enoch's account as well. So we'll be going, I think we'll be going back to the fall a couple of times. I think so. I think so. We'll see how we do. Yeah. Yeah. I I think Cain is is really where the fall starts to feel. Like it's a fallen world. Actually, that's in Genesis. But I really feel like in the Moses account, um, you've got a lot, you you have a whole chapter before Genesis joins in. There's so many verses here that are missing. The Joseph Smith translation adds such a rich supply here. I'm just blown away. Adam and Eve, I mean, Cain is not even until the second generation. Adam and Eve are already having children. They're pairing off. They're getting married. And Cain marries one of his nieces. I mean, you know, it's it's a whole generation or two down. I don't even know if it's grandchildren or great-grandchildren. But the thing that is the saddest for me reading this account, uh, this narrative in the book of Moses is that um, Adam gives this beautiful declaration and, and Eve are testifying to their children and um, about the Savior and the children don't listen and they they start following Satan. And it's just this heart-wrenching prayer that they have a child who will follow God and that's when Cain's born. You know, it, it would be one thing if it were just one of the many who were falling away. No, this is pleading with the Lord to send a child who will follow and obey. You know, they here they're doing the best they can, and their kids are following Satan. They're 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 following the adversary. And of course, none of this is in Genesis. None of right. it. Right. Well, Genesis covers Cain, what, Genesis four, right at the beginning of what, five or six verses? You know, it's almost how many chapters we have. Yeah, it goes <laughs> from, from the Moses. fall to Cain's birth. And then look what we've got here in Moses, just this beautiful depth of the story. And the innuendos make such a difference. Yeah. So I'd like to cover, obviously, Cain and Abel are such an iconic and important story from the Old Testament. And of course, we have so much more light and understanding from these uh these books of Moses. Yeah, the restored scripture is just fabulous. So important. I, I, you know, once rereading them, I don't understand how we can not have those, right? So, so my first question here is with regards to Cain, why, why do you think this is? Obviously, they're, they're praying for someone righteous. I don't quite get it. Well, you know, it's sort of, you have to have the context of um, the angel comes, I'm just going to read here from the scripture. When the angel spake saying, this thing is a similitude of the sacrifice of the only begotten of the father, which is full of grace and truth. You know, the, the, the Adam and Eve had been told by an angel, you know, why are we offering these sacrifices? And the Lord commands him saying, everything is to point to Christ. 
And so Adam is blessing God. I'm just continuing on here in the in the verses. And um, the children, his his sons and daughters and grandchildren, heard these sayings, but they don't follow. Adam and Eve, it says, were glad. They finally understood. And this is where we get. In chapter 5, not, verse 11. Yeah, chapter 5, verse 11. Were it not for our transgression, we never should have had seed. So it's way after this time and never should have known good and evil and joy of redemption. But unfortunately, um, the sons and daughters were told, don't. Just keep going down to verse 13. They believed it not. Just tragic. And that's when Adam and Eve pray and have Cain. She conceives. Verse 16, I think. So let's talk about what happens with Cain, right? So in very brief summary, they have Abel too. There's no, there's no Cain without Abel, so to speak, <laughs> at least in the, in the narrative. And, you know, Abel, of course, makes a sacrifice. Call him a Boy Scout, if you will, right? Very thoughtful. No, I'm not going to call him a Boy Scout. I'm going to say he is, he is making his sacrifice as in a similitude of the only begotten. You know, I don't, I don't see it as one prepared and one knows how to, one, one grows grain and one does sheep. And so, you know, the biblical interpretation, at least amongst my, uh, the scholars that I read um, outside of our faith tradition say, you know, just because God wants an animal and he only, but he didn't have any animals, he's just growing wheat. So he's doing it differently. That is not the issue. The issue is one focuses on Christ and one is taking away from the focus on Christ. Remember, wonderful Moroni, it's, it, it's either, if you're of God, you're focusing towards Christ, and if you are of Satan, you are focusing away from, I, I feel it's a powerful difference, not just who can build a fire. Yeah, I, I, I mean, those, those, those two are juxtaposed for a reason. I think there's more to it than sort okay. of, yeah. well, we can get to it. I, you know, look, we talked about this last session, but you know, oftentimes the, it's not so much in the action itself, right? Um, but in the purpose yes. and the intent, right? So what do we, what do we think Cain's intent was compared to Abel's? Well, that's the reason why we have to have the book of Moses, because you don't get it. You just see God preferred one from another. You, you know, I can see where all this biblical tradition of God just predestines. He just says, you're going to be damned and you're not going to be damned. You know, I can see where this comes from out of this story of Cain and Abel. But with the addition of Moses, which we are so blessed to have, we get these wonderful verses. I'm going to just start here. Um, Satan said to Cain, swear unto me by thy throat that if thou tell that thou shalt die and swear thy brethren and by their hedge, and he goes on and on and on, uh, that they're making these covenants together. And then Cain says, truly, I am Mahan, the master of this great secret, that I may murder and get gain. You know, this, this idea of getting gain has been around since the Garden of Eden. Uh, I love the way Hugh Nibley says it. Um, Satan's first article of false faith is you can buy anything in this world for money. And here we have again, I am, I am the master of this secret. I can murder to get gain. And we see the ramifications of that in our day and age. Well, that's a new concept at this stage, it's right? It's a tragic concept. Right, yes. right. New then, yeah. And then just go down two more verses. Cain gloried in that which he had done. This is after he commits the murder. That's a big deal. I, I am free. Surely the flocks of my brother hath fallen into my hands. See, I am free. He thinks he's free. Isn't oh, that ironic? That's such a different reaction than Adam and Eve. Oh, 
I am so glad you brought that up. But none of this is in Genesis. Yeah, it is, it is such a different... Adam, in fact, it's not until these chapters that we're studying now that we learn that Adam and Eve were forgiven in the Garden of Eden. And Cain has such a different reaction, doesn't he? Yeah. yeah. So what are the consequences for Cain? Oh, this is so sad. Well, he's told by the Lord that you're going to be a fugitive and a begamon, right? I think um, the consequences are you wanted your brother's property, you wanted your brother's land, and so from now on, the natural consequence is that your land is not going to produce. Um, it's you're in you're in a bad shape, and I feel that um, sometimes we misunderstand that we think the consequences are that Cain gets a curse. But the curse is separation from God. The land is cursed. In fact, the land is cursed not only in Genesis 5, 29, what, what I'm just reading here, but again in Genesis 8, 21. And then look at Moses, Moses 7 and 8, 8 and 4, 1 Nephi, the land is, we talk about the land being cursed. 1 Nephi 17, 35, Enos 1, 10, Alma 37, the land, Helaman, Ether, the land is what is cursed. Now, the mistaken interpretation that we have of this is that Cain's curse was black skin. That is not biblical, not restoration scripture. It's completely a misunderstanding because we don't hear about anything about Cain's curse. Look at, look at this. It's, it's Genesis chapter 4, verse 15, or else Moses 5, 39 to 40. God sent a mark upon Cain to protect him. And his mark has nothing to do with black skin. We don't hear about black skin until way, way, way later. There's a group of people that are called the Canaanites. Now, sometimes the Canaanites are good, sometimes they're bad, and sometimes the Canaanites are one group of people, sometimes they're another. And it's very difficult because the names are the same, just like it is Cain has a son named Enoch who builds a city. Right. This is not, not the city Enoch's, of Enoch, right? Yeah, the city of Enoch that we refer to in in that was lifted up to heaven, you know. So it, it's tricky with Cain assuming, oh, Cain must be Canaanite. No, 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 no. The scriptures do not say that. Cain's mark is a protection. God protected him. And it's interesting as we look at this in the Book of Mormon. Um, as you recall, Laman and Lemuel are separated from God. But their curse is that they no longer enjoy the presence of the Spirit. They still have the light of Christ. You know, they're still human. They still have the breath of, of Christ, the breath of life. Um, but the, the skin, it says very clearly in Second in Nephi, the skin is to form a separation so that the wickedness will not be enticing to your people. So, and it doesn't ever say that, they all wake up with dark skins. You know, I assume they're intermarrying with the people that were already in the land from, we, we know there's a lot of people there because in one generation, we hear, hey, I've been trying to find you and I can't find you. You know, if we only have 20, 30, 40 people, <laughs> how, are, how is it so hard to find each other? Right, you know? right. So anyway, it's pretty clear that they're intermarrying with the leftovers of the Jaredites or whoever else right, is on Mulekites the land that the Lord so brought. On, right. But I think it's very significant as we read the scriptures to realize that the mark that the Lord set upon Cain was to protect him. It was a blessing. I, do you want to read those verses? It's a really beautiful the way Cain I th- is so I think upset. so, because yeah. there is something I want to talk about, about how the Lord treats Cain which is quite merciful, I think, especially given the context. Yeah. Cain said unto the Lord, 
Satan tempted me. This is the book of Moses, um, chapter five. Satan tempted me because of my brother's flock. And I was wrought also for his offering thou didst accept and not mine. But, you know, the Lord's not going to accept any of our offerings if it's just done without real intent. We have to do it the Lord's way. It's just not going to work. Right, right. I think, so So this gives us more insight into Cain. Um, and this that has a little bit of an idea, you know, you mentioned Laman and Lemuel too. I'll come back to them in a second. But Cain's verse, you know, in, I'm looking at Genesis 4, 13, and Cain said unto the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Why would that be, right? If all of those afterwards is a gain. Okay, I got to interfere, interrupt here, because Moses inserts, the Joe Smith translation inserts into that verse. So Cain said unto the Lord, that's all the same. And then we get this part about Satan tempted me. See, they don't have that. They don't have anything about Satan. That's what I'm saying. Genesis does not know anything about the devil or temptation. They don't know how it works. So that's why you get a God who Seems arbitrary. Seems totally arbitrary. So that I feel is really important, but keep going on on my punish is greater than I can bear. Because I feel like that, the only thing that's added there in Moses, in the Joseph Smith translation, behold, thou hast driven me out this day from the face of the Lord. So he acknowledges that I am no longer going to be able to be in the presence of the Lord. But it's interesting that he's blaming God for it. Thou hast driven me rather than taking responsibility, which is what Adam and Eve did. When they were confronted, saying, what are you doing? They said, oh, we blew it. And Cain says, look what you've done to me. Right. It's a different attitude. But I think underneath it all, it just seems like, maybe I'm stretching here, but but underneath it all, it seems like what Cain's really after is the Lord's approval. You just want to do it his way. You mean Cain wanted to do it his way, but he wanted the Lord's approval of he doing does. it his way. He does. Oh, but don't we do the same thing? Oh, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> you know, especially as children, right? I'm thinking like, you know, the approval of my parents. That, that's a, that's high on the priority list, right? You you want that. I think that's uh, an But approve human. me my way. Don't approve me the Lord's right. way. Yeah. Right, right. And that's, that was the problem with Cain. It's got to be the Lord's way. I think so. But I think the Lord sees that because what I see, and this is the impression that I got, you know, this, this last reading through that I've done is that the Lord is just remarkably merciful to him, especially in the protecting. Why, why protect him at all, right? Um, especially with that severe punishment on those who do take their revenge, yeah. right? Because obviously Abel was popular or no one would be after Cain, right? Mm-hmm. And so I can see that side of things. Like, you know, Cain's fa- uh, Abel's family, you know, wanted well, it also probably says vengeance, that, right? That Abel was righteous, um, that Abel served God and he was a good man. So he was the answer to the prayer that Adam and Eve had sent us a child who have a soft heart. Well, let me show you this. As, you know, as a parent, which which is harder, losing Abel or losing Cain? Oh, that's a sweet question. Yeah, yeah. Because you lose Abel mortally. Right. But there are eternal ramifications of Cain's hardened heart. Yeah. But I'm always optimistic that it's not over until it's over. We have that wonderful verse in section 138 of the Doctrine and Covenants that even those who rejected the prophets will have a chance on the other side. Now, that was the whole reason why the Lord set up missionary work in the spirit That's prison, right. you know? That's right. Even if you rejected the prophets, you know, you will have a chance. You have your time. And I also feel like Cain's curse of having bad land is not as great as the curse that we have labeled him over history 
that the descendants of Cain are these cursed people with all these other problems. We have added that on as humans to our fellow brothers and sisters, and that is wrong. I think so, too. It was six generations later that we learn about the first people um, in, in Moses chapter 7. Actually, it's in these chapters as well. Moses 7, 7 through 10 is when we learn about that. Um, I want to come back to Laman and Lemuel a little great. bit. Great, yeah, because, please do. Um, you know, linking the Book of Mormon to the Old Testament, I, I saw some parallels. You mentioned some of these as well, but, you know, I see a couple of entitled kids, right, who have a righteous brother, who maybe annoys him. I have a little brother. I know <laughs> I know what that's like a little bit. We see it again with Joseph and his big brothers, right? I mean, there's just that, that yeah. that's a common thing. You grow out of it usually. And he doesn't even have to be in a family setting. He can that's be in a school right. setting or a work <laughs> setting. You know, that's we're, right. We're, we're sometimes you, prone to jealousy. It's, yeah, a, it's a natural yeah. man thing we got to learn. It is. It is. Overcome. Um, but, you know, one of the things that really stuck out to me is they still had this idea that they knew the Lord they look to him for for something, right? Some value, whatever it may be, but they seem to blame him in the wrong situations and take, instead of taking responsibility. There's so many different parallels between Laman and Lemuel and Cain. Is that interesting? Yeah. And, I th- and I think, um, at least in the very attitudes. Um, and it's then very the, clear they were both taught right, by right. good parents. Yeah, and then the last part of it that really sinks home to me and is, you know, in this effort to like him, it's like, you know what, I, I can't put these people in the sort of, you know, arm's length role, they have traits that I have, right? Just being human and part of the fall. And that we got to really be careful about guarding against that, I think. Oh, I but love then also, yeah. But also the yeah. mercy that, that he yeah. gives us, When we right? look inside, let's make sure that we guard against behaviors that would um, yeah. harm another. I'm touched that that's one of the characteristics of charity. Um, we do not step on another to raise ourselves and which of course is leads yeah. us to Enoch, which is the pure love of Christ, which right. is the Zion society. But keep finishing up with Kate. I didn't mean to right, jump right, in. Right, right, right. No, I want to. Yeah, that's actually a really good segue. But but the last thought to to finish that up is is that there's mercy in the Lord's punishment, right? It's oh, like you know I'm let's cursing the that. I'm cursing the land, but if anyone touches you, like it's going to be worse, right? I'm I'm going to give you the space mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. to change and repent, and it's up to you to take it. And again, going back to the Book of Mormon, I, I see this most in Lehi's dream, right? With, you know, he has this vision of his beloved Jerusalem, right? The whole Book of Mormon is set off by Lehi's love of Jerusalem, right? And he prays and he loves him so much and he has this vision and he, and he sees the destruction of Jerusalem and this, the city he loves. And he wakes up and his first thought is how merciful the Lord is. <laughs> right. And so, so for me, it's like, that doesn't make sense. That's not how I would see it. But if I'm a parent, like, no, like there's tough love. There's, this is the merciful route. This is the, the, be, the, oh, this is the I, least amount of punishment I can I give you. Right. I totally agree. In fact, one person said to me, um, I have stopped believing in God because I can't believe in a God that would allow, that would tell people to destroy entire nations. And I say, but don't you see that from an eternal perspective, I mean, just, just zoom out from an eternal perspective or as cosmic ex- experience, it is better for the next generation and better for these people not to add more sins upon their head and not to raise up children in an unrighteous generation. It is better to allow them to have a period to repent in a different environment where they can learn without some of the challenges of the natural human 
hormones, appetites, passions, you know. Well, this is the Lord the gardener, right? This is the gardener. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We grow line upon line and we're here to about, it's, it's all about growth. It's not about Superman coming in and saving you. Yeah. It's about um, becoming more like our Father in heaven, becoming more like our Savior, applying this right. atonement in our life. And that, that pessimistic point of view really takes out the perspective that there's another side of the veil with the Lord is working with the people he's taken, right? You know, and you you mentioned Lehi comes out saying what a merciful God is. And that's just what we see with Enoch weeping. And then he sees more of a vision. Then God weeps and Enoch says, how can you weep? Right. And then he's, they both, and then Enoch weeps again. I just, I just feel like it's, it's, they both see the merciful nature of God that whichever side we're looking at, if we look deep enough, we can see God's mercy and his atoning sacrifice, his grace. Yeah. Well, let's talk more about Enoch because after Cain... Oh, it's so <laughs> nice to get onto Enoch. I love Enoch. Because after Cain, there's, you know, Seth, and then there's a genealogy, and then we talk about you know, Enoch. I, I've taken that genealogy, and I've written it all out, and I've made it as a chart. I put it on little pegs and everything so I can see exactly who lived when, and it blows me away how many people were still on the earth at the time of Adam. Now, I don't know their birth ratio, and I don't know their death ratio. I know what it was like in the Middle Ages. You know, when we, when we start keeping records, you know, we have some idea. But it says there's a, there's a lot of people on the land. And um, it amazes me how many people knew Adam and Eve. You know, the people that were alive at the time of Enoch, some of them knew Adam and Eve. I mean, it's just, it just blows my mind to see how, how tightly everything is wrapped here. Um, so, so much for the genealogy, but we'll talk more <laughs> about genealogies later, but that, that was interesting to me. So Enoch, there's so little about it in the Old Testament. Oh, it's sad. The, the revelation from Moses, tell us more about that. What, well, what are some of the new... The fabulous thing about this, so Joseph Smith gives from the Lord inspired, you know, chapters, chapters on Enoch, and then... Um, they're published in the Times and Season. They're put into the Pro Great Price. They're canonized. And then we start doing a little archaeological digging. And things are found. And things are translated. And out of the Dead Sea Scrolls, you know, this is 1847. I mean, 1947, excuse me, you know, after the nation of Israel is formed, we start getting other records about Enoch way after the fact. So now we have Second Enoch, Third Enoch, Fourth Enoch. You know, we have all this other extra information. And amazingly, many of it parallels to Joseph Smith's text. And I am really eager to jump into these chapters, um, Moses 5, 6, 7. But I just have to give you this one little story first before we jump into the scriptures. I was um, um, at my discussing my dissertation, and I'm arguing my dissertation before the board. And my thesis is Joseph Smith is not a product of his environment in his understanding of the spirit. Um, that he is completely different than the Second Great Awakening. One of the members of my board um, at Marquette Marquette University, you know, no one has anything to do with the church here, um, is a Roman, I mean, is a Greek Orthodox. Mm -hmm. And he says, Lynn's thesis does not stand. Joseph Smith may not be like his environment, but Joseph Smith is exactly like Enoch. I am an Enoch scholar. I have studied everything there is written on Enoch, and Joseph Smith fits the pattern of Enoch exactly. He is a young, uneducated person. He doesn't feel like he can do much good, and yet he can preach. He can carry out the gifts of the Spirit. He can da-da-da-da. Anyway, it just, I just had to chuckle. And um, 
I was thrilled that, <laughs> that somebody completely unrelated to our faith tradition saw a parallel between the young boy from Sharon, Vermont, in upstate New York, named Joseph Smith, and this great prophet of the Old Testament, of the Book of Moses, and now of these extra-biblical, canonical, extra-canonical works on Enoch. And, and you can find him online, you know, just type in uh, writings on Enoch, and we have lots of them. They're fabulous, and to see these relations. But we get so much that testifies that Joseph Smith was a prophet of God, that this Joseph Smith translation was divinely inspired. And you know that from the Spirit. You don't know it from looking at these other sources. But for me, knowing that some of these <laughs> stories are in the other sources is just exciting. I just get really thrilled to say, Joseph Smith, that was a bullseye. You just got it right on. You know, how in the world could you have come up with these three chapters that overlap in so many ways? Um, and they give us fabulous doctrine on our Savior. As we're looking for ways that the Old Testament can testify of Christ, I really feel like these Moses translations are just powerful. Um, you know, he starts out, where, where is this one? Yeah, um, what's your, on what's your favorite? Yeah, it's in Moses 6. I, well, I'll just start with this one. Um, Moses chapter 6, I think it's verse 55. The Lord said unto Adam, Behold, I have forgiven thee thy transgression in the garden of Eden, and hence came the saying abroad among the people that the Son of God hath atoned for original guilt, wherein the sins of the parents cannot be answered on the heads of the children, for they are whole from the foundation of the world. I mean, this completely knocks out so many of the traditions that were formed from starting with St. Augustine all the way down through the Reformation. Um, it just is so clarifying. And Enoch is preaching this. Enoch knows Adam's traditions that well. You know, he's just so familiar with them. He is able to do this. And he learned it, though, from the Lord. Uh, we, we are told that earlier in, in Moses 5 and 6, that it's God who made known unto him to repent. And it is, um, and he follows, he follows. It's just powerful. But I, I, I'm also interested in this idea that we have a, a, someone who feels insecure in his position. He's being called by God to do something um, and he doesn't feel worthy uh, or capable. Um, and he says, oh, you know, I'm just a lad. I've got, I've got a speech impediment here. And you just look in scriptures and say, how many other people have said that? You know, Moses says, I can't do this. I, you know, I, 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 and look what he does. He establishes Zion, the only community. Well, no, that isn't true. There's many, many, many communities that join the city of Enoch. Even Melchizedek people join the city of Enoch. But Enoch is our prototype. You know, he's he's the one who established it. Yeah, I think about how different that, I mean, that culture is in the church, right? We're a church of assignments. It's, it's not unusual. Oh, we're a volunteer <laughs> <Right>? organization <laughs> with volunteer people and a bunch of bumbling idiots that try to do right. our best. But it's the Lord's plan because um, we're trying to learn how to get along. How different that is from the rest of the world. Right? I think about my jobs, yeah. right? 
you know, and you're uh, quite a professional. Yeah, you have good. <laughs> you have a very good track record, job, right? Mr. So, so the the these different uh, ways that the world tries to promote and value people is just so different than the one the Lord has. Amen. Right, and he he calls people with you know potential, and I mean, I'm interested in your thoughts. Like, what is it he's looking for? Do you think? Like, how does he find a Nephi and an Enoch? Well, do you remember you know, or an um, Abel even, right? Like how um, did, this conversation Joseph. in Liberty Jail, mm. you know, Joseph says, you know, first of all, where is the pavilion? You know, right. where is your hiding place? <laughs> right. But, you know, after that, a few verses, he says, um, I call. Many are called, but few are chosen. Mm. And why are they not chosen? Because they hearken not. And then he starts listing the principles. The Lord tells, even in the New Testament, it's mentioned several times, he looks not on the outward appearance. I mean, actually, that's quoting from um, the Old Testament when right. um, the prophet Samuel is looking for the next, the king. Right. And the Lord says, don't judge him by his outside. You know, I look at the heart. Um, now, it does say Nephi's larger stature. However, <laughs> <laughs> the Lord doesn't really care that he's large of stature. Uh, he really cares that he will say, I will go and do the things that the Lord commands. I kind of go back to last uh, session um, and this one, especially with Cain and Abel. Like, what, man, what's the, really the difference? Because they're all both offering sacrifices, right, and, and so on. And it's really about the heart, isn't it? It's like, where's your heart? Because the Lord can fix everything else. So figure it out. You know, it doesn't matter where you grew up. It doesn't matter that you didn't grow up in the church. You don't have the same habits of someone who spent their whole life in the in sort of the pavilion, your race, so to speak. Your culture. doesn't matter. It just, just matter. where's your heart. And the Lord, man, we see miracle after miracle throughout history. As and the these Lord aren't changes. small miracles. These are, oh. these are pivot points oh. of history, right? Yeah. You know? Um, That's beautiful. That's really yeah. a great insight. So I think about this with my dad. So my dad's a convert. And he's Chinese. And um, my grandfather is, uh, I would say, just anti-religious in general. Um, I kind of understand, though. He went through world wars, you know, terrible things, you know, growing up uh, in China there. And my dad found the gospel and uh, had the courage to live it and to believe it. And no one else around him was there for him, wow. right? And then I think about, you know, uh, the, everything that I have from there on those, those, those small hinges of history, right? Um, you know, my, my mom's side, uh, she has seven brothers and sisters, right? And half of them are baptized. You know, my grandma joined the church later in life uh, and so on. And then, you know, we see all the grandkids and the cousins that are now members of the church. And of course, me and all the missions that we served all came from my dad. Right. And just those really hard choices and those really seemingly Again, small the, moments. Our our weaknesses can become our strengths. Yeah. And if we hearken unto the counsels of God. Yeah. And just that, you know, just that courage mm -hmm. in those small moments. Yeah. No, Enoch is probably one of my favorite examples of courage. He did such hard things. I just love reading about his his preaching. You know, I he he was so courageous. Um and that's when the Lord finally, re, you know, rewards him um, and says, I'm now skipping ahead quite a bit. The Lord called his people Zion because they were of one heart and one mind and dwelt in righteousness, that there was no poor among them. 
And also, if you notice the verse right before, the Lord blessed the land. So the curse uh, that had been there for a while might have been lifted at least enough to get some rainwater and to get some <laughs> uh, some good food so they could at least stay high. But the, isn't that one of the blessings that all goes through the whole Old Testament? If you obey my commandments, you'll have water that's needed. You know, if you obey my commandments, I'll take care of you. I think that's so interesting how this lad, as he calls himself, who was yeah. slow of speech. In what his does own that mean? Words. 30, 40, 50, 100 yeah, That's a good point. <laughs> this time of age, I don't know. But someone who himself said he's slow of speech yet could get a community together and to speak the words of the Lord yeah. in a, in ways not heard since Adam or even maybe even the Lord himself from the Eden, right? Yeah. Um, in ways to get people who were wicked to cooperate, to live the consecration and to yeah. build Zion. That's amazing. It's our weaknesses can become strengths. I also feel like the mantle that the Lord gives a prophet is so real. And just as I've watched little teeny things like the mantle of a calling, whether it was a small thing in like, you know, pianist in the primary or a, a larger thing, a president of an organization or a bishop or something, you know, a stake president, whatever. Mantles are real. They are real. And I have seen the mantle come and go on beloved dear um, friends and family members. And um, it is not a light thing to say you are the Lord's anointed. Um, it, it is a powerful promise. Now we're still, I mean, Joseph is very clear. I never yeah. said I was perfect. You know, <laughs> the revelations are from God, but don't think I know how to spell your name, you know, Simon Ryder or whatever the issue is. Don't think I'm... You're not going to beat up my little brother when he chews me out kind of thing. You know, he still has lots of weaknesses. Um, but if William were my brother, I would have chewed him out too. So anyway, that's, <laughs> the sweetness of the Lord's mantle is very real. And to me, it, it all centers around um, the power of the priesthood, using the priesthood as the umbrella of God's power on earth. So it is male, female, children, old, young, whatever. You know, I mean, it, it's not anything separated from if God is blessing you, you are empowered. Uh, to carry out his work, but it's always empowered to carry out his work. You know, we can't be using it on ourselves. I love that part of section 46 in the Doctrine and Covenants. Five times when they're talking about the gifts of the Spirit, the Lord teaches Joseph, these only work when you're trying to build the kingdom. And Enoch is building the kingdom. Um, you know, these angels come and teach him. Let, let, let's keep going in, in chapter 7. This is just powerful. Um, just a few verses down. Um, 33, Enoch beheld angels descending out of heaven, bearing testimony of the father and the son and the Holy ghost fell upon many. This is so novel compared to other biblical understanding of the spirit that they do not see the spirit as an old Testament function as much as it is a new Testament function. But here, right here, we've got very beginning of the world. The Holy ghost is there when the people are not offending the Holy, the spirit. You know, the spirit is this, is, is this precursor to the law of consecration? Oh, oh, definitely, definitely. And that's why I think Joseph Smith says when he's asked by Martin Harris, remember 1839, Joseph has to go back to Washington, D.C. and beg for some help, you know, and Martin Van Buren, I said Martin Harris, I meant Martin Van Buren says, what's the difference between your church and others? And he says, the gift of the Holy Ghost. And then he writes in his letter to his brother, he said, I considered all else to be combined in this. But I'm glad you mentioned law of consecration because it's interesting. Joseph is just translating this part of the book. He finishes his Enoch chapters 
gets a little bit further and the Lord says, okay, stop translating now, pack your bags, get to Ohio, and I've got to talk to you in Ohio about a new law. I'm going to give you a new law. So as soon as he gets there, you know, February 1st, 1831, he receives a revelation within a week or two of the law of consecration, section um, 42 in the Doctrine and Covenants. And to me, understanding Enoch's people, where they are one heart and one mind, there is no poor among them. That is what the goal was then. And when they asked, can we go to establish Zion? Can we go to Missouri? Can we establish it right now? He says, yes, if you can live this law. And they couldn't, you know, Enoch, Enoch's people had 370, 65 <laughs> years before they were translated. You know, it took them a little bit longer than poor Joseph's. Uh, maybe fewer angry mobs too. <laughs> you know, maybe fewer angry mobs. I don't know. It sounds like they were, they were pretty amazing people. But um, I am really touched by the fact that not only did they get rid of this extreme, because in our generation, it seems like we are becoming more and more rich and poor. You know, I look back at my parents and grandparents' generations, and there was a, there was a few Rockefellers, you know, but we have, at least in my community where I'm from in the San Francisco Bay Area, rich and poor is a real problem. And I just long for the day that we can live the law of consecration more fully, but I still feel we can all live it to the degree that it has been revealed to Enoch's people. We can all live the law of consecration if we take stewardship over our responsibilities and we give everything we can to the Lord, our time, talent, and so. energy. So I, I love that Enoch's covered here because, and you talk about the early church a lot here, because this seemed to be their blueprint. You know, oh. they want to build Zion. That, that's that's the thing, right? We Nauvoo or Salt Lake, wherever it may be, that's our goal. We're building Zion this and is, now this Zion is, it. This is, is in the our type. own stakes. It's wherever right. we live. That's We're right. Zion and so I, I think this living, this law of consecration, for me, there's two parts of it. Of course, the temporal, you know, the no poor among us, but the spiritual part of it, which- They were of one heart One and heart and one, one mind. mind. That's, it's a community. I love you know, it. There's a church of doctrine, which we all need, right? We're discussing it now. But then there's just different when, you know, uh, you're part of a community and you're living the doctrine, right? I, for me- you know, no poor among us really starts with that, you know, is and that one, one sister who one, maybe is socially yeah. awkward or something like that? It's like, man, can they be loved? Can they just be loved the same way? I feel like the right? unity comes from the same thing that the Lord prayed for in the Last Supper, in the intercessory prayer or after the Last Supper, um, that they can be one as we are one. And I don't think that means... Uh, you know, that we look like or that we have to right, decorate like right, or we have right. to have our own ideas. You know, I think there's alike, a lot right, of diversity. Right. We're human. We're human. We have a lot of diversity. But the, if we can be unified in our love of the Lord, if we can be unified in our desire to come unto Christ and be perfected in him. Um, do you remember that first branch in the Book of Mormon, the, at the Waters of Mormon? Right. The first branch, it says, we did nothing but preach and then he, he talks about Christ, but he talks about one specific aspect of Christ, the redemption, our Savior as our Redeemer. And that's what we have to be unified on, is that Christ is our Redeemer. And if we can focus and become one in heart with that, I, I have a great Yeah, hope. the Book of Mormon, I think, retells the story of Enoch so many times, mm. right? You know, you mentioned, of course, Alma, both Almas, right? <laughs> um, and, uh, of course, Abinadi, which is, you know. Oh, uh, beautiful. Just, beautiful. Oh, Nephi. 
uh, over and over again, there's this story of of gathering and preaching and, and becoming one. Drawing, Nephi yeah, drawing out of the wicked. Is our only other example of a century-long That's right. uh, repentant people. Um, it's a little different. You know, they don't get... Oh, that isn't true. The people of, of Melchizedek also were taken up. Right. But um, that is our other hope, is that we can take the teachings of our Savior in Third Nephi and apply them. I want to talk, um, I know our time's running out, at the very end of this beautiful section of chapter 7, where Enoch sees another vision and he begins to weep. The Lord explains more to him and the Lord begins to weep. And he says, you know, how can you be weeping? You're God, you know. And um, they go through this beautiful experience where they understand this nature of God that is just empowering. You know, I, I refer to Moses chapter 1, verse 39. This is my work and my glory to bring to pass a lot about understanding the nature of God. But to me, this is another powerful verse to understand the nature of God, you know, as has been written up by Terrell Givens. You know, we believe in a God that weeps. But then at the very, um, toward the end, when Enoch is weeping again, um, he cried unto the Lord saying, when shall the earth rest? And then the Lord goes on and promises him that in the last days, when the wickedness and vengeance, the Lord will fulfill the oath that was given concerning the children of Noah, that the earth will rest. And as we read the book of Revelation by John the Beloved or John the Revelator, um, we read that the Lord will not come. You know, we've got the seven plagues. Uh, I, I think mental health is one of them. I don't know if Corona is <laughs> one of them, but, you know, definitely it's going to get a lot worse than it is now. You know, definitely it's going to get worse before it gets better. Um, we're in a terrible shape. And we've gone through, you know, 14 chapters of disasters happening leading up to this. Finally, in chapter 19 of the book of Revelation, in verse 7, it says, The bridegroom will come because the bride is ready. And the bridegroom in the book of Revelation is, of course, the Savior, which is also in the Old Testament, um, Jehovah is the bridegroom. And then the bride in the book of Revelation is the church, his people. And so when the covenant people are ready, the Savior will come. And that's what we see right here in Enoch, right, right here in Enoch. When will you come? When will this happen? As soon as a people are prepared, as soon as a people are living as a Zion society, as soon as we can get our acts together as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and keep the law of the Sabbath, religiously and make it a delight and and keep the law of tithing and the law of fast offerings and the law of of service and the law of charity and the law of hope um you know once once our temple covenants are so ingrained that they are like wallpaper lining our souls Christ can come he'll come the calamities can be cut short we can do our part if we can become a Zion people this is why we needed Moses chapter 7 and 5 and 6. You know, this is why we need the story of Enoch. This is our example of where we have to be before the Savior can come again. Yeah. And it all started with the lad who didn't know how to speak. Amen. Yeah. Hallelujah. <laughs> well, that's all the time we have for, for, uh, for now. These chapters are so fabulous. I hope so all good. of you listening will be motivated to tear them apart, to read them carefully, and um, receive a witness from the Lord. 
that these are words of God and that we can apply them in our lives to draw closer to our Savior. Thank you so much. Nice to be with you. Thank you so much. Nice to be with you. Thank you so much.